0: Okay, Erev Tov, good evening everybody, good to, good to see you all. This is the second installment of Kol Dodi Fake, Rabbi Soloveitchik's famous work, Listen, My Beloved Knocks. The title that I used for this, uh, this series is when, when God Knocks on Our Door. It's a play on Bob Dylan's song, knocking on heaven's door, sometimes we're supposed to knock on heaven's door. It's called uh, davening, right? It's what we do three days on a daily basis. Sometimes we're just mumbling words, but we're supposed to be knocking on, knocking at heaven's door, right? And, uh, and but there are instances in, in history, in Jewish history, when Hashem is knocking on our door and sending us messages and signals, and it's our job to respond to those messages and signals. Sometimes these messages are sent on a personal level. In our own lives, we've all had moments where we feel like, wow, Hashem is talking to me. I'm getting a message here. And there are moments when the Jewish people, I'm Yisrael, and the world at large, God is sending messages to all of us. Okay? And this is about some of the national messages and signals that Hashem is sending, the knocks on the door, and about the appropriate response when these knocks on the door apply. Now this is the Rev's seminal work on religious Zionism, although it's a far-reaching work. I use the word work uh, some, um, let me explain that this is a lecture that the Rub gave in 1956 by Joseph Salavichik, the head Yeshiva, of Yeshiva University. Uh, you know, uh, he was from the great Salavichik family, great Tamidei uh, Chachamim in Brisk and Vilna. His family, by the way, was was anti-Zionist. Okay, mamash anti-Zionist, not neutral, anti-Zionist. Okay, uh, I remember. <laughs> Sitting on the bus when I was in high school, and there was a guy who came back from yeshiva, and he came back like very harif, You know, we were talking about Zionism, and he was saying, you know, Rav Chaim of Brisk says that if you're sleeping in the room with a Zionist, you should be careful. Don't go to sleep because they might kill you. Okay, that's like the. I'm not saying that story is true. I'm just telling you what I remember being told. It's like that type of anti-Zionism. Okay, I I don't mean to dismiss or or, or just you know say oh well there's no justification or anything for it. I'm not you know that's its own story. The Rav will break away from his family's anti-Zionism and he moves from the Agudah to the Mizrahi movement, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, the Rav becomes the head of of Mizrahi. And each year, during a number of years, he would give lectures on the importance of Medinat Yisrael, the state of the Jewish people. Uh, This is the the most famous lecture that he gives in 1956, about eight years after the building of uh, Medinat Yisrael. He gives, they just produced a new book called Return to Zion, edited by the OU, in which they collected new lectures in the Rebbe, not new lectures, lectures that were given in Yiddish from 1945 to 1955 or something, originally presented in Yiddish. And they just translated them into English. I got a free copy at the Mizrahi conference on Thursday in Yerushalayim, Yer HaKodesh. Rabbi, how his family... How do they reconcile his view? Um, listen, what happens with the Rav in the yeshiva world is is both uh, is is sort of sad in a way. Like they'll what they'll say is like they'll learn the 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 they'll learn his Khidusha Man Shas, but they sort of reject his world philosophy. So they call him, uh, you know, some of them call him, oh, we learn Yashka Bear, or, we'll learn JB. Sometimes it's disparaging. Because of Yosef, you know, Bear, Dob, you know, they'll learn his, uh, you know, JB is a sort of, you know, um, insulting way of talking about it. Because they know he was a great Lambdin. And so they accept that, just close the door all the way. But uh, sometimes they reject his, uh, his Hashka fan. And. Um, Question? And Where did his brother Akhir stand? His brother, Ravaran Soloveitchik, was a huge Zionist as well. Yeah, also Rosh Hashiv at uh, you and also in Chicago. Okay. How, long, how long did it take him to two and why? Okay, so that's a lecture that he gives. He has a series called the Five Dreshot, which explains why he became a religious Zionist. Now, in this book, you'll get a very good sense of it. This was originally original lecture made into a book, which he then he edited and he added footnotes to. And some of the footnotes themselves are whole essays you know, that are worth studying and analyzing, which hopefully we will get to. Now, chapter 1, chapter 2 have to do with the righteous suffering. And we started this last week, but I want to flesh this out further. Definitely get through 1 and 2, and I also want to get through chapter 3 tonight. Before we get to, and we'll see if we can get to chapter 4. back in one minute. Okay. The righteous suffer is the topic of chapter 1. Now you all have a copy of this, or you should have a copy on Safari, so you'll be able to follow along some of the uh, some of the texts. We'll do our best to stay together. The first person to ask the question, "Why do the righteous suffer?" is Moshe Rabbeinu. When he asks Hashem, Hashem in Parshat kitisa, Hareini Kvodecha, explain to me your ways. Why do things happen the way they do? Hakadosh Baruch Hashem evades the question. Doesn't really answer the question, okay? Because the ultimate answer is. You can never understand my understand my ways. Now the Rev then goes on to say that there are two different ways that we can respond to tragedy and to grief and to loss and to suffering. Number one is the existence of fate. Number two is an existence of destiny. destiny. What is an existence of fate? What is an existence of destiny? An existence of fate is to be passive. An existence of fate is... I'll just read his phrase. It is a factual existence, simply one line in a long chain of mechanical causality, devoid of significance, direction, purpose, and subordinate to the forces of environment into whose mists the individual is pushed, unconsulted by providence. Man is an object. It, what he means by an existence of fate is a mindset that we have when we approach the world. And it's a mindset of feeling that things are out of my control, things are happening to me. Okay." And the rub is going to suggest that the mindset of fate, the existence of fate, is not the ideal way to approach tragedy and loss. What is the existence of fate? What does that really mean? What that means in practice, the way it plays out, that a person experiences a loss, and the loss we're talking about here is a national loss, uh, the national tragedy of the Shoah. This is in the wake of the Shoah, but this can apply to individuals as well. The Rev is saying that what happens is, first of all, when you're living in existence of fate, you, you have like all this confusion, like, why this happen? Uh, you know, like, what, you're just dazed, you're shocked. And then the existence of fate, the person starts to ask the following questions. Why did this happen to me? and they try to seek out rational explanations in order to comprehend what happened. They try to find answers, philosophical, speculative, conceptual answers to explain evil in the world. This is an existence of fate. Now you might think, hey, this is very proactive, it's good, you should seek out answers, right? The Rev feels that this is actually a movement away from what Judaism wants it to do. Judaism does not want a person to try to seek out answers to why bad things happen. You know why? Because we can, no, we don't have the answer. We don't have the answer to this fundamental question. Okay? We don't have the answer. And many religions, in giving answers, Christianity in particular, they sort of dismiss the evil. They wash it. They... they They explain it away, they rationalize it. Well, evil exists because X, Y, Z. Give all these explanations. And the Rub says evil is a fact that cannot be denied. There is evil in the world. And he goes on to say it is impossible to conquer monstrous evil with philosophical speculative thought. When we try to give philosophical explanations, you know what we're doing? We're denying the evil. And end, we're denying the person of of their experience of suffering. Oh, what you're experiencing is not really what you think it is. What you think is bad is actually really good. Right? That's like the worst thing you can say to a person in a shiva house. Oh, no, it's not a big deal. Don't worry. It's, uh, you know, you still have five kids left, you know, even though you lost one, right? It's like, I'm not saying people, (laughs) you understand the, 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 the mindset. The Rav does not think that we should be seeking out philosophical, metaphysical, speculative, conceptual answers to this question. Because all of them end up trying to deny what evil is. Now, what is an existence of destiny? It is an active existence, when man confronts the environment into which he has been cast with an understanding of his uniqueness and value, freedom and capacity, without compromising his integrity and his independence in his struggle with the outside world. Man is born as an object, dies as an object, but is within his capability to live as a subject. As a creator and innovator who impresses his individual imprimatur on his life and breaks out of a life of instinctive automatic behavior into one of creative activity. Okay, what on earth is he talking about here? Where are you? I'm still in chapter one. It's hard to like... Uh, you know, in the middle of, middle of chapter one. Now, what the Rev is saying here is that there's an existence of destiny. An existence of destiny is not to say, well, why is this all happening to me? It's about being proactive. It's about taking a step forward. I think I shared with you last week that I've been reading a book by Edith Eager. Edith Eager wrote a book called The Choice, international bestseller about the Holocaust. The Choice, did you read the book? It's an incredible book. Oh, you're reading it again now. And she, she talks about her experience in the Holocaust, along with her experience to become be, be, becoming a psychologist and learning how to deal with trauma and then helping others deal with trauma, okay? And the ultimate point of the book is that every person has a choice about how they respond to the stimuli that are presented to them or whatever happens to them. This is very, you know, Victor, in the, or she's Victor a student, Frankel. a friend, a colleague of Viktor Frankl, and he gave her a lot of chizuk during this, during this time period, okay? And she writes about him in the book. And she argues in every situation we have a choice about how we respond. And what she tries to do is to help her students recognize that choice. By the way, this is not an idea that she came up with or Viktor Frankl. There's the Rambam and the whole point of the Rambam is that we have to decide who we are and how we want to behave and how we respond to things. It's a fundamental premise of Judaism. It's so fundamental, it's not even included in the 13 Yikarei Munah. It precedes them. How could you have reward and punishment if there's no free will? How could you have, uh, you know, uh, redemption? The whole point is, first, the premise is that there's free will. That is the premise of the Torah. the Rambam, right in hilchot Read it over. Edith Eger, Victor Frankl, all the Rambam, and it's all in the Torah. Natan Sharansky wrote about it in Fear No Evil. Okay, nachon, Natan Sharansky, Yafemod, Fear No Evil. You could be in the Soviet gulag and you could decide, instead of letting the Soviets take over your mind, you could play chess in your head. And think about how you're going to outwit them. He's got all these incredible stories. I mean... He, was he, was one day. he mentioned this at the Mizrahi conference, Sefer Tehilim, para Kafkimo. I'll just share with you a beautiful word. This is like incredible. He, his, he had a Sefer of Tehilim. Okay? which they took it away and he got it back and he learned how to read Sefer Tehilim in the Soviet Gula and his favorite of Tehilim is Mizmor <speaking> le David <in> Hashem roi lo echzar Bino desha y'arbitzeni almey minu chotina Hashem you're my shepherd Gam keylech bigay tsalmavet lo ra ki ata imadi even when I'm walking in the shadow of death I am not afraid because you ki ata imadi who is you So Sharansky was telling us in the conference on Thursday, he said, people ask me, am I on the right? Am I on the left? Am I pro the government? Am I against the government? Am I pro this, right that religious, non-religious? Whose side are you on? And he says, when I was in Soviet prison in Siberia, Hashem was with me. My parents were with me. My wife was with me. The Jewish people were with me. And it wasn't the right and it wasn't the left. They were all with me. They all gave me chizuk. And indeed, the whole world, the Jewish world, came out to support Nathan Sharansky. Did it matter what your background was? Did it matter left, right, this, that, uh, right? So that was his answer to uh, which side am I on? (laughs) With all of them, with everyone. Everyone was there for me. I'm there for everyone. Which I think is the right response. Again, it doesn't mean you can't have disagreements, but that, the large picture, that's how we have to see all of Amisrael all the time, at every moment. And if we do that, I think we can minimize our differences in a significant way. But that's more on that at a different point in time. The existence of destiny is to recognize that we have that choice, to recognize that a person can choose how they respond to grief. An existence of destiny is not about seeking out philosophical answers. It's about asking the question, what can I do, as opposed to why did this happen to me? How can I respond? And he calls this the halachic response. The halachic response, halacha, is rooted in this world. What do I do? How do I tie my shoes? How do I eat kosher? How do I daven? How do I keep Shabbat? All about doing, about actions. And he says, I'm going to read from... I am however interested in it from a halachic point of view and as a person who wants to know what action to take, I ask the single question, what should the sufferer do to live with his suffering? In this dimension, the emphasis is removed from causal and teleological considerations about why it happened or the purpose of my suffering, which differ only as the direction and is directed to the realm of action. When a person is suffering, they shouldn't focus on why this happened to them because we don't have an answer but what can I do as a result? How can I change myself? How can I transform the world around me? The halachic, now, he gives an answer, it's an answer, but again, it's not a philosophical explanation for why suffering exists. The halachic answer to this question is very simple. Suffering comes to elevate man, to purify his spirit and to sanctify him, to cleanse his mind and purify it from the chaff of superficiality and the dross Of crudeness to sensitize his soul and to expand his horizons. Suffering appears in the world in order to contribute something to man, in order to atone for him, in order to redeem him from moral impurity, from crudeness and lowliness of spirit. This is not a philosophical explanation for why tragedy happens. We don't have an answer to that, but what can, what can we gain from the experience we can redeem ourselves. We can elevate ourselves. We can cleanse ourselves. We can purify ourselves. We can make ourselves better as a result of the suffering that happens to us. Just to give an example. Okay, the D family. I mean, just. Well, what is there to say? What is there to say? Half a family wiped out of Am Yisrael. And they're such incredible. You just see how incredible they are. And what did they do? They donated, I think it was five organs, of Lucy Di Zichon to save five people's lives. Now, do we have an explanation of why this terrible tragedy happened? No, we do not. But you just see how this tragedy, how it led to them becoming incredibly just... so giving it so altruistic and thinking about how can we help other people at this moment in time right again we don't have an explanation for it but that's an example of saying well what how can we use this tragedy to make the world a better place how can we fill the the darkness of this void with goodness with light and that's a really good example and by the way all Jewish heroes they all fit into this paradigm the Sharanskys of the world the Edith Eagers of the world Parents well. <laughs> the parents the well. parents is the world. That, this is it. This is... It's making that choice to bring goodness instead of instead of wallowing in darkness. Rob uh, Mendelovitch. Mendelovitch. Uh, we can go through every Jewish leader. This is it. This is it. Okay? It's that choice. Do you think that applies to the biblical heroes as well? Yeah, I think of any of them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can go through them, but yes, absolutely. Now, and it also you know, when we suffer, it could also lead to a response of repentance, of tikkun, of teshuvah. So instead of asking why, what? Okay, now, and this this is the last paragraph of chapter 1. In short, man must solve not the question of the causal or theological reason for suffering, with all its speculative complexity, but rather the question of its curative role in all its halachic simplicity by turning fate to destiny. And this is the key phrase. We need to turn fate into destiny. We have to move from a mindset of fate, of, oh, this is happening to me and I'm trying to understand why this is happening, which is passive. We have to move that into an existence of destiny. Fate into destiny. Okay? To destiny and elevating himself from object to subject, from thing, To man Adkan Perek Aleph Perek Bet Perek Bet is called Job, Eov The Rav is now going to demonstrate How this model that he presents Of an existence of fate and destiny Eov first Tries out Responding to tragedy Through an existence of fate But ultimately Transitions to an existence of destiny and that is when Eov achieves some form of catharsis, redemption through his suffering. As we know, the story of Eov, you know, they say about Eov, Sefer Tehillim, every Perak is about a different topic. And Sefer Mishlei, every Pasuk is about a different topic. And Sefer Eov, it's so hard, every single word is a different topic. Okay? It's a very challenging Sefer. Now, but Eov, in the beginning, you know, he's, he's wealthy, he's happy, he's prosperous, but then he loses everything. And the story of Eov is his three friends, four friends, trying to console him, trying to give him uh, consolation, explanations. They discuss why the righteous suffer, etc., etc. Now, Eov, again, also begins with, you know, he, he moves into this mode of faith. Why is this happening to me? I want an explanation. And God's response to him is, Did you know who it is who darkens counsel by speaking words without knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if you have such an understanding. Do you know the time when the wild goats of the rock will give birth, when the hinds will cap? God basically says, you don't understand anything. You're a speck of dust in the universe. You don't understand. Stop asking why. Okay? And the Rav continues to explain that Eov ultimately figures out what the right response is. And the right response is a response of loving kindness, of prayer for those around him, of building community, of sensitivity towards others, again, of action, a halachic response of what can I do to make the world a better place. Okay, and uh, the rub goes through, you know, explanation of, uh, of, uh, of Eov to explain exactly how this, how this plays out. Let's go to the, the last part of, this, uh, last part of this, this chapter and read from there. The Holy One said to the friends of Job, Now therefore take unto you seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. This is the end of the book. Eob is going to pray for others. Behold, I will test Job yet another time. Let him be tested publicly. Does he now know how to pray for others and participate in their travail? Did he learn anything in the hour of retribution and divine anger? Did he adopt for himself a new style of collective prayer that encompasses the community? If he pleads for you, he will bring his salvation and yours, for to him I will show favor. Then you will know that Job was redeemed from the narrow straits of egotism and entered into the vistas of communal empathy, and that social isolation has ended, and communal affiliation has appeared in its stead. A wonderful thing happened. Job suddenly understood the nature of Jewish prayer. And what is the nature of Jewish prayer? You tell me, what is it? Communal. It's communal. Hashiva shofteinu shona. Shema kolenu. Right? It's all about... Chadesh aleinu. aleinu. Okay, barech aleinu. Give us. It's communal. We're davening for others. That's why communal tefillah is so important. We're not just davening for ourselves. We're davening for everyone around us. God finds faith God loves the, the, the tfilah the tzibur. He never rejects it. He discovered in one moment its plural voice and the attribute of loving-kindness that sweeps men from private to public domain. Again, he understands that the grief, the suffering, is meant to make him better. Not an ultimate explanation, but it's the halachic response. He discovered in one moment its plural voice and the attribute of loving-kindness that took men from private to public domain. He began to live a communal life, to feel the community's hurts, to mourn its disasters and rejoice in its moments of celebration. Job's sufferings found their true appearance, his escape from the prison, which he had found himself in God's wrath, was assuaged. As it is written, and the Lord changed the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Again, the communal response, the loving-kindness response, the, prayer, the prayerful response. Now, why is the Rav talking about the righteous suffering? Because we are living in the shadow of the Holocaust in 1956. We are still living in the shadow of the Shoah and the Holocaust. There were those who gave philosophical, speculative explanations for why the Holocaust happened. Two of them come to mind. And the Rav is arguing with them he's presenting a different approach it's not like attacking them he's not engaging in a fist fight with them but he's essentially giving a very different explanation for why the evil of the Shoah happened his explanation some people say can they can never answer why. we don't know some people say they don't okay. know why the Shoah happened it just happened correct, correct. but the Satmar Rebbe of Yoel Moshe title bound in a book called VaYoel Moshe which is based on a pasuk in the Torah VaYoel Moshe and Moshe lingered in Midian after leaving Egypt He has an explanation for the Holocaust. Anybody know what it is? What caused the Holocaust? The State of Israel. Zionism. The State of Israel didn't exist, but Zionism. It's because the Zionists went to Israel that the Holocaust happened. Because what did the Jews do? They were going to Israel without Mashiach coming first. And according to the Satmarav, this is like the ultimate sin, and not just that it's the ultimate sin, but it was worthy of six million Jews being killed. Now, there is a discussion about this in Masach Hakitubot Kufir Aleph. This notion of there are the Gimel three swears, three uh, oaths that the Jewish people take that they're not supposed to sort of uh, ascend the wall, okay, or climb the wall, okay, without. You know, at the when it's not the appointed time, and according to the, the Saba Rebbe, this means you can't go up to Israel without approval of the nations of the world. Okay, and so the Zionist enterprise is a rejection of the Gimel and that warrants the Holocaust. There, are many, in the there are many, there are many, correct, there are many holes in this argument. If you want to read, if, Fantastic essay on this. You could look at Rabbi Norman Lambs. I'll send it. And put into the group. Rabbi Norman Lambs' book, uh, work, uh, essay on the Satmar ideology. First, he presents it very respectfully, and then he continues to rip it into shreds. Okay. Uh, there's so many different responses to this. Number one, we didn't just like go and you know, you know, go up ascend the wall. There's a Balfour Declaration. There's 1947, No, no, Kaftad bin November, you and you vote, we're given permission, if you will. Number one. Number two, the nations of the world attacked us and tried to kill us. We had to go to Israel because of the pogroms in Kishinev and all these other places. So they didn't hold to their side of the oath. Right? Number three, this is an agarata. It's not meant to be taken necessarily as halachic, you know, yes or no, Number four, even if this is meant to, you know, it's some form of a uh, prohibition of swords, it doesn't mean that it's the central tenet of Judaism. And even if it's the central tenet of Judaism, it doesn't mean that a war in six million Jews being killed. I mean there's so many, so many holes in this in this argument. And okay, number four, two. number five or six, there are other agadot which speak about the importance of going up to Eretz Israel. That speak about the importance of taking action. Going to Israel—it's a mitzvah, of course. So there are all these different, uh, different explanations. When, yeah. when he, write he writes it in the 1950s or the 50s, I think. It's still considered an, an the 1940s, yeah. 50s, something like that. The today, still oh great. yeah, the Karta for sure. They still oh, it. um, Absolutely, done you. absolutely, you absolutely. Done yeah. absolutely. Now, uh, and we can give I can give you a share at some point no, uh, uh, on a more more expansive uh, discussion on this. The, um, another explanation given by Rav Tzvi, the cook, this is the son of Avam Yitzchak Cohen Cook. Avam Yitzchak Cohen Cook is the, the first chief rabbi of the, uh, of the new I yeshuv. Mean. Not in the state of Israel, it does in 1935. Mm-hmm. Chief rabbi from 1921 to 1935. Great mystic, Tamil Chacham. Also one of the great rabbis of religious Zionism, Rav Cook, Rav Soloveitchik, the two pillars. Now, Rav Cook's son, Rav Tsvihu the cook, becomes the head of Yeshiva Merkaz Arav, which is his Yeshiva, when, when Rav Kook passes away. Rabbi Tzvi, to Kook, gives sort of the opposing explanation for the Holocaust. The Holocaust was meant to untether us from Galut. We didn't want to leave. And therefore, this is the only way to get us out, by being forced out. This has its own theological problems as well. It's the opposite. It's it's not because we went to Israel, it's because we... It's not, no, no, it's not because we, we, we went to Israel, it's because we didn't go to Israel, exactly. Okay. This is also a theological explanation which which falls into the category of the existence of fate, which the Rav is unwilling to entertain. But isn't that a very strong argument, given that Jews have never throughout our entire history yeah. as a people been have been left alone in peace in one country. There's not a single country on the planet that we have continuously lived in in peace and harmony. Yeah, no, no. All been changed away. So, he has a pretty strong point, you know, and you hear in the you know, <laughs> Okay, but first of all, to explain the Holocaust through that is like, too, yeah. No, 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 no it, it's, listen, it, it could be, but listen, it could be, you could make a case that, you know, in general, sometimes we get pushed out of places because Hashem wants to remind us, hey, your real home is in Eretz right? Okay, uh, but on the on the scale of the Holocaust, it's it's a harder argument, much harder argument to to make, right? And the rub feels that we we cannot give an explanation for for evil in the world. Evil exists; we cannot dismiss it. Now, chapter three: missing the appointed hour. Okay, so. Now in this chapter, the Rav takes his idea of, you know, that there's a halachic response of what can we do to make the world better when they're suffering, and he shares the opposite side of the coin. Just like when a terrible thing happens, we need to respond in the right way. So when a good thing happens, we also need to respond in the right way. let me read. If God's grace, which is given to either an individual or a community, requires certain actions of the beneficiary, even if the gifts, such as wealth, honor, influence, power, which are attained by exhausting effort, are granted to man by natural means, how much more so is it true that divine gifts given supernaturally, in the form of miracles that transcend the framework of the elementary laws of historical causality, must subject (laughs) the recipient of the miracles to God? Miraculous grace places upon man an absolute responsibility to fulfill the larger imperative that calls out from the miracle. So just like there's a correct response to suffering, there's the correct response when good things happen, right? When something good happens, we're saying, we say, we say, we give a sudan odaya. we give extra tzedakah, right? Think about, think about purim. Purim takes place, and what do we do as a as a result of Purim? We manot, matanot Right, we do all these things to give. And Pesach, we give a lot uh, to collect money uh, Correct. For okay. For the poor. For So they can have food for Pesach. Now, failing to recognize God's miracles, failing to do to respond to God's goodness, is is a moral error on our part. And the Rub gives an example. The famous story of Chizkiyahu HaMelech reigned from the, in the King of Judea from 730 to seven, uh, 700 BCE in his time, during Chizkiyahu's time. Somehow was the heat put on in here, by the way? Does it feel warm or cool? Cold. Feels cold? Okay. Okay. In the time of Chizkiyahu HaMelech, you're freezing? Okay. We'll, we'll pause it in a while. yeah? Many are cold, but few are
1: frozen. Okay. Oh, yes. we'll,
0: we'll pause the uh, the air conditioning for a little bit. Oops. Yeah. Okay, we'll we'll, uh, we'll put it up a little bit. Okay. The um, the rub gives an example from a sachet sanhedrin of Khizkyauhamelh. Who was saved. Remember, Sancher of Melech Ashur, conquers the northern kingdom, exiles them, and then he sieges Jerusalem. What happens to the siege of Jerusalem? A miracle happens. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers die from a plague. One fell swoop one night. Chizkiyahu was saved. And the Gemara tells us Hashem wanted to make Chizkiyahu Melech HaMashiach. But what happened? Chizkiyahu failed to thank Hashem. The Malachi HaSharetz say, wait a second, David HaMelech, he writes all of Sefer Tehilim to praise you and to extol you. And you didn't make him Mashiach, Chizkiyahu HaMelech, who received this incredible miracle and salvation. And he doesn't utter a word. This guy can't be Mashiach. So we see that failing to respond in the right way at the right moment at the appropriate time, and this chapter is called Missing the Appointed Hour, that is a moral failure. We know how important it is to, to respond in the appointed hour. We daven shacharit and kreat shema and mincha and arvit at the right time. We shake our lulav during the day. We, everything, every mitzvah is connected to a, a time commitment. And the rub gives a fascinating contrast between Shaul HaMelech and David. is the first king, David is the second king. Shaul sins, David sins. Shaul is rejected and ultimately killed. David sins but is embraced, even after his sin. What is the difference between Shaul and David? It's about missing the appointed hour. Shaul HaMelech is commanded to go kill which nation? Amalek. Amalek. Does he succeed? Mostly. Almost. He He kills almost everyone, everyone, but then he keeps the sheep and the women and Agag, the king. He doesn't kill the most vicious of the Amalekites. Agag. doesn't kill him. And Shmuel comes to him and says, Umeh, by the way, Umeh. There's a play on the, the frit. Man, what is this? What is this? All oh, these the, the sheep, you know, the, the ba in the background. What are the sheep doing here? You're supposed to kill them. And Shaul he hesitates. He says, well, you know, the people didn't want to kill them. They wanted to take them as captives, etc., etc." And when Shmuel says, you know what? It's more important to listen to God's word than it is to, you know, than it is to bring a sacrifice. Then Shaul starts to, oh, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have done this. There was a time lag between Shaul's sin and being told, rebuked about the sin, and his repenting for the sin. Contrast this with David Amelach. Takes Bathsheba, has relations with her, commits adultery, sends Uriah HaChitit to battle, kills him. Terrible thing, not such good things. And when Natananavi comes to the Abelach and says, David, let me tell you a parable. He shares him with a parable. And David, you know, from this parable says, Oh my God, that man is guilty. And Natananavi says, Atahaish, it's you. Look in the mirror. What does David say? Chatat. Doesn't equivocate, doesn't rationalize, doesn't justify. No, no, no. Missing the appointed hour. the difference between David and Shaul is responding at the appointed hour when God is telling him it's time to shape up. Now well, Shaul was prone to internalize things. Shaul was prone to internalize. Yeah, Shaul things. had confidence depression. issues. Shaul was had depression issues. Shaul, the whole and, and, you could do and, a whole psychological and, and, uh, assessment of Shaul. Doubts, which we know the. Doubts, he had yeah, doubts, etc. Now, the symbol throughout Tanakh of responding at the appointed hour, the the, the most sort of captivating image of this, is in Shir HaShirim Perakeh. And Shir HaShirim, which I'm going to pull up right now, Okay, Shir HaShirim Perakeh, Song of Songs, which according to Rabbi Akiva is... Kodesh, Kodesh Kodeshim, okay. It's the most holy of our different uh, of our books of Tanakh. What is Shir Ashirim? It is a love song between a lover and his beloved, a man and a woman, and they're in search of each other. And uh, you know, when she's ready to date, he's not ready to date. He's dating someone else. And when he comes to find her, she's this. She's busy. They're searching after each other. Okay. And of course, this is, a, this is a mashal, a parable for the Jewish people in Am Yisrael, and Hashem. He's seeking us out, and when Hashem is ready, we're not ready. And when we're ready, Hashem says, no, you know what, I'm not ready for this. Ultimately, the love is never consummated throughout Shir Hashirim. But we, we hope and pray that it will be. Ashkenazim read this book, Archol Amoy Pesach. They also read it on Lela Seder. Some read it after Lela Seder. When do Sfaradim read this book? The every, every night, Friday night before Kabbalah Shabbat before Kabbalah Shabbat so do I It's why Tefillah Kabbalah Shabbat for Sephardim takes a little bit longer or some would say you could get there a little bit later and it's still okay I read it before before uh, Melcha, No, I, I read it and we need to spend we need to spend more time on this uh, Bezrat Hashem will give a, shira, a, a series on this one day what happens in Shira Shirim I'm sleeping the, the woman says the Re'ayah but my heart is sort of awake. She's half asleep. The dough is knocking on the door. Open up, my beloved. <laughs> my head is filled with dew. It's raining outside. My curls are curling up. And she says, <laughs> She's saying to herself, Ah, oh, I'm already in my pajamas. I'm ready in my clothing. I've already taken, uh, you know, my shower. Uh, well, I'm going to go out and get, uh, get dirty again. Finally she gets up to open up the door. And what happens? <laughs> the Dod has already left. She's not answering the door. He gives up on her. What happens? She now starts to search after him. She searches for him, goes into the city, calls for him. The guards, the watchmen in the city find her. So what are you doing here, you crazy woman? They start beating her and pushing her around. And she's searching out for her dod. The dot again, the image of the dod knocking on the door. This is why the rav brings this. Let's read here. Okay, we're in chapter 3. What is the essence of the story of the Song of Songs? If not the description of a paradoxical and tragic hesitation on the part of the love-intoxicated, anxiety-stricken lover when the opportunity, couch, and majesty all presented itself. Okay, and they He's knocking, she's knocking, but they don't meet. Okay, we'll go to the end of the chapter. So long as the whispering of the Beloved split the hush of the night, so did the heart of the Lover harden. Pleading and patient, the Beloved continued to beckon while the minutes and hours of the clock were ticking away. The Lover did not respond to the voice of the Beloved. The door to her tent was locked shut, the opportunity was lost, and the, and the vision of an exalted life died. True, after a brief delay, the Lover awoke from her slumber and jumped in haste for her bed to greet the Beloved. I rose up to open to my Beloved, but the leap came too late. The beloved had stopped beckoning and had disappeared into the darkness of the night. My beloved had turned away and was gone. The joy of her life was exiled. Her existence became a desert, a storehouse of emptiness. The episodes of feverish search returned. She, the lover, still wanders through the dwellings of the shepherds, seeking her beloved. Now, chapter four, the six knocks. This is the most famous part of this essay, and this we're going to read. We don't want to miss a word of this. We'll talk about how this has been incorporated into the curriculum of every Israeli, okay, at least religious schools here in Israel. Let's read together the six knocks. Again, we're talking about the knocks on the door, okay? He's provided the paradigm from Shia Shirim. Now we're going to talk about the knocks at the door with Medinat Yisrael. Eight years ago, in the midst of a night of the terrors of Maidanic, Treblinka, and Buchenwald, in a night of gas chambers chambers and crematoria, in a night of total divine self-concealment, in a night ruled by the devil of doubt and destruction who sought to sweep the lover from her own tent into the Catholic Church, in a night of continuous searching for the Beloved, on that very night, the Beloved appeared, the Almighty, who was hiding in his splendid sanctum, suddenly appeared and began to beckon at the tent of the lover knocking on the door who tossed and turned in her bed beset by convulsions and the agonies of hell because of the beating and knocking at the door of the mournful lover the state of Israel was born how many times did the beloved knock on the door of the lover it appears to me that we can count at least six knocks so the six knocks are the, the, the divine signals God communicating to us. They're telling us that he's, he's here. He's here to rekindle the relationship, to be present, to renew after all this period of exile and longing. Hashem is saying, I'm back. And what are the six knocks? First, the knock of the beloved was heard in the political arena. From the point of view of international relations, no one will deny that the rebirth of the State of Israel, in a political sense, was an almost supernatural occurrence. Both Russia and the Western nations supported the establishment of the State of Israel. This was perhaps the one resolution on which East and West concurred during the Cold War era. But think about this. They don't agree on anything. Suddenly they agree about the creation of of Israel. The vote was 30 to 13, by the way. I am inclined to believe, I love this line, that the United Nations was especially created for this end. For the sake of fulfilling the mission that divine providence had placed upon it. It appears to me that one cannot point to any other concrete accomplishment on the part of the United still Nations. Can, can. There's someone once said, you the UN, the unwanted nobodies. Now, okay, the UN does do some other things that are good things. Okay. When it comes to when it comes to Midinat Israel. The UN is is a how shall we say is a den of is a, is a of anti-Semitism. It's a platform for hatred. I think I was once shown the percentage of like of resolutions against Israel versus every other thing happening in the world combined. Combined, and it's like uh, like ninety-six percent of resolutions. Some crazy, ridiculous number. The United Nations is a shame. It's a sham. The United Nations is not fulfilling its mission. Not so many years ago, United Nations declared Beit Shalim to be a world heritage site. Beit Shalim in the Galilee, yeah. And... so it dawned on me, the only Jews they love are the dead ones. Hmm. Yeah, correct, correct. Okay, the United Nations, uh, we can get into a political discussion, should really be a United Nations of democracies. It should not include uh, the nations of the world that commit atrocities, and uh, which include many Muslim nations today. Uh, this, is just, this is just the reality. But the Rav puts it very correctly. The United Nations was created for this one purpose, uh, voting to agree to the creation of Midnight Israel. I don't know if you remember, but I sort of added a second... You know, I, I, well, I had a play on this, okay? When a particular American president uh, voted that to move the embassy from Jerusalem, to, uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Okay, so I said, uh, you know, this American president, there's a lot of, uh, some pros and many cons. I said, maybe he was brought to this particular moment to make this particular move. And I quoted Rub Soloveitchik. At that, uh, at that, uh, during that dressing. Now, our rabbis of blessed memory already expressed this view. At times, rain falls on the account of one individual and for one blade of grass. I do not know who the representatives of the press, with their human eyes, saw it to be the chairman of that faithful session of the general assembly in which the creation of the state of Israel was decided. But he who looked carefully with his spiritual eyes saw the true chairman, who conducted the proceedings. Who was the chairman? The ultimate chairman. The beloved. He who knocked with his gavel on the lectern, do we not interpret the passage on that night the king could not sleep? Right? Where's that from? Migilat there Right? Right? The king could not sleep was not Melech it was Melech as meaning that the king of the universe cannot sleep if HaChashver Shalom had been asleep, this matter would not have been at all important salvation would not have arisen on that night if however the king the master of the universe cannot sleep as it were redemption would be born if just anyone were to have opened the session of the United Nations the state of Israel would not have been born but it was the beloved who rapped on the chairman's lectern and the miracle materialized listen my beloved Knox kol dodi again that's a phrase from Shira Shirim. Now, shall we read one more out of the six? Second, the knock of the beloved was heard on the battlefield. The tiny defense forces of the state of Israel defeated the mighty Arab armies. The miracle of the many delivered into the hands of the few materialized before our eyes, and even a greater miracle happened. God hardened the heart of Yishmael and commanded him to go into battle against the state of Israel. Had the Arabs not declared war on Israel and instead supported the partition plan, the state of Israel would have remained without Jerusalem, without a major portion of the Galilee, and without some areas of the Negev. If thousands of years ago, Pyro had allowed the children of Israel to leave immediately, as Moses had originally requested, Moses would have been bound by his word to return in three days. Pyro, however, hardened his heart and did not listen to Moses. He brings examples, historic examples, of... Because they hardened their heart. So we, in the end, benefited from this. The Holy One then took Israel out with a mighty hand and by an outstretched hand. The goal originally was just that the Jewish people go for three days for a little uh, sadna in the desert, right? A little Shabbaton, right? The Holy One then took Israel out with a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Consequently, the force the promise that the children of Israel would return to Egypt was, was vitiated. No, one contra- no contract that is based upon mutuality of promise binds one side of the other. Party refuses to fulfill its obligation. Listen, my beloved, Knox. So we have number one, the political arena, the UN. Number two, mirac- miracles of the battlefield. Question. Yes. This occurred to me last week. Yeah. Why do we not say, Alhamdulillah, I know that's OK, good question. There is a, uh, a version of it. Uh, fair question Al-Nissim you know you know we, we, you know, we, we speci- is, is designated specifically for Purim and Chanukah and uh, we're wary of making, uh, making that, that change, like... we're wary of making such you know significant uh, changes to the Amidah itself yeah. but uh, there are those who include it and uh, to, uh, to recite it it's a beautiful tefillah by the way okay this is these are two of the six knocks. why six I speculate six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. Okay, the um, six maybe is a prelude to the ultimate redemption, which is seven. We see here the rub suggesting that God is knocking on the door. When when God knocks on our, on our door. We're going to talk, we're going to go through the other four knocks. We're not meeting next week, we're not meeting in the next two weeks. Unfortunately, we're meeting in three weeks from now. This is recorded though, in the next series will be uh, set will be recorded as well. We'll talk about the other four knocks, and then to just close the door. I have two weddings the next two weeks, and then we will understand. Well, if God is knocking at the door, how are we supposed to respond? Both in 1956, when the Rav delivers this lecture, and also today, Adkan, we'll continue.